Good morning once again. This morning as we open God's Word, uh, we are continuing in our teaching series through the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth. And this is week number four in our series called Everyday People. I want you to think about a word as we get started here. What do you think about when I say the word Moab? Mountain biking, yeah. What do you think about when I say the word Moab? Does something come to mind? Clearly it does for some. Does nothing come to mind? Is that an unfamiliar word, perhaps? Well, maybe you're like me, and the, when you hear the word Moab, you, you first think of Moab, Utah. Anyone ever been to Moab, Utah? Yeah, uh, it's in the desert southwest has these stunning red sandstone slick rock formations and towering cliffs and formations. I've got a picture actually of uh, Moab, Utah. Perhaps you've seen uh, arches. Uh, it's in that same region. And that's what a lot of people think of when they first hear the word Moab. I think of backpacking, of mountain biking, of trail running in a place that draws people from around the world to find solitude, adventure, and beauty. So maybe you think of Moab, Utah, or perhaps you think of the giant bomb developed by the United States in 2002 and tested in 2017 called the Moab, the mother of all bombs. Anyone, else, anyone think of the mother of all bombs when I said Moab? Well, now. <laughs> yes, now, all right, you're tracking. The Moab, or the mother of all bombs, is the largest non-nuclear bomb in the U.S. arsenal. It is filled with the equivalent of 11 tons of TNT. Uh, Moab was designed to wildly intimidate the enemy, and it was effective. Just knowing that we had this thing struck, heart, uh, struck fear in the heart of our enemies. And it was also designed to functionally obliterate surface targets, as you can imagine the mother of all bombs might do. So, maybe you thought of Moab, Utah, maybe you thought of the mother of all bombs when I say Moab, or perhaps, perchance, you thought of the biblical Moab. The, 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 the land, the people, the kingdom we find in the Bible, the land of Moab, which situated southeast of Israel, uh, lasting from around 1270 B.C. until Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Here's a picture of uh, the land of Moab. There you see to the southeast of Jerusalem. Perhaps you think of the biblical land of Moab. Regardless of how you associate the word Moab in your mind, uh, the biblical idea, if you read scripture, you come across Moab. You come across the Moabites. So to some degree or another, whether large or small, the biblical Moab figures into our scripture-shaped imagination in some form or fashion, especially as we read the Old Testament. More specifically, for today's purposes, Moab helps shape the backdrop. Moab informs the backstory for the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. Do you know what a Moabitess is? A woman from Moab. That's what we call women from Moab, from the land of Moab. Moabitesses. Rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? So let's start with uh, Ruth chapter 1. Let's read the beginning of Ruth once again uh, as we jump in uh, to today's uh, lesson. 
Ruth chapter 1, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. The two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. So they moved to Moab. It would be easy for us to launch into the telling, launch into the story, uh, a reading of the book of Ruth, and hear Moab and think it's just part of the furniture. Think it's just uh, merely uh, part of the story scenery, uh, mundane background information. But if we assumed that, we would be making a big mistake. To think such things would, to, would be to miss out on an important dynamic happening in this story. In fact, hearing of Elimelech moving his family to Moab from Israel and his sons then marrying Moabite women, it would have set the stage for a striking story in the ears of the original hearers. In fact, what we're trying to do today is sit with those original hearers of this story uh, and get into their headspace and maybe more importantly, get into their heart space about how they're hearing this story. Because they would have heard those first five verses of Ruth and their ears would have perked up like, what? What is going on? Things must have been really, really bad for someone like Elimelech to uproot, move from the promised land given to them by God and move into the land of Moab. Moab, and then to make matters worse for his sons, they must have been really desperate because they married Moabitesses. Moabite women. For the original hearers, this was a striking, startling story. So maybe it helps us to think then, who is it we revile? Who is it that we just have a wholesale revulsion toward in our world, in our time? Uh, who is it, what group of people do we find gross or, or reprehensible? I hope your list is short, but maybe it includes gypsies. I'm trying to come up with a list here, okay? <laughs> Maybe it's uh, Trump voters. Maybe it's woke white liberals. Uh, maybe it's Muslims. Maybe it's door-to-door -door salesmen. I don't know. I had to come up with a list because I'm standing up here, right? But we know what that feels like to hear a label, to hear an identifier, and instantly feel in our hearts, ooh, ooh, I don't like those people. Right? We may look at Israel and, and Moab's relationship and think like, oh, that's so weird that a whole nation just hates a whole other nation. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's right. Maybe we don't hate Canada or, or whatever, like Moab hated Israel, or, uh, Israel hated Moab and vice versa. But we know what it's like to categorize and revile whole groups of people. It's in us. We have that same ability. So that leads me to believe it's possible for us to get into the headspace of the Israelites as they heard this story, of Jesus' disciples as they heard this story, as they assimilated this into their understanding of how God is at work in the world and how He's redeeming mankind. With a bit of disdain and with a hint of reproach, the story of Ruth opens on a scene colored by a very troubled history. 
negatively charged by animosity and prejudice. Israel had a historical, categorical dislike of anything Moab. They disliked anything to do with Moab. By the end of Ruth's story, there would have been a sense of full-blown scandal for the original audience as the closing genealogy uh, reveals that Ruth herself, a Moabitess from the land of Moab, is in fact the ancestor of who? King David and then Jesus. <laughs> what? This is scandalous. The way the Jewish audience would have heard the story uh, in the B.C. before Christ and their key takeaways from it in many ways would have been much different than ours. You see, how many here have heard the story of Ruth before? How many of you have a love for the story of Ruth? You've done Bible studies on the book of Ruth, probably women's Bible studies because that seems to be their wheelhouse, right? Uh, we, modern, western, Gentile readers, we come away from Ruth's story uh, holding to themes of, of Boaz's kindness because he is our, kinsman rede our kinsman redeemer. He, is a, he prefigures Christ. He is a Christ figure. He is taking in the vulnerable. He's providing salvation for the dispossessed and, the, and, the, and the, those who have lost everything. But there is so much more going on in this story. There are themes of God's covenant faithfulness. There's themes of God's providence and sovereignty, of God's loyalty and kindness, and of enduring family bonds. So we do well. I believe it's time well spent for us to approach this story and do our best to hear it with Jewish ears. To hear it with Jewish ears, with a geographically and historically oriented Old Testament understanding as best we can. So today we're just really going to do a deep dive into Moab. All things Moab as far as the biblical land. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about Moab as we continue painting the backdrop to Ruth's story. As we mentioned before, uh, the story of Ruth takes place in a particular time. It takes place at, during the time of the Judges. During the time of the Judges, probably between 1200 and 1020 BC, which is in the last third of the second millennium before Christ. This then places it, uh, places her story on the timeline somewhere between the conquest of Palestine by Joshua and the consecration of Saul as the first king. Why do we know it's between that? Because they're in the promised land, but they don't have a king. So it's probably, most likely, obviously between the time when they conquest, the conquest of the Holy Land and the consecration of Saul as Israel's first king. Additionally, it is a time, it was a time of moral and political chaos in Israel when everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. Everyone was left up. To every, everything was left up to everyone to do whatever they thought seemed right. Israel had no central government or leader. Uh, people kept turning away from God and neighboring countries kept harassing them and invading them. It was a tumultuous, difficult time. One of these harassing and invading countries was most likely, almost certainly, Moab. Was Moab with its long, rocky, conflict-ridden history with Israel. Now, like I pointed out on the map, Moab was located east of the Dead Sea in what is modern-day the Kingdom of Jordan. Okay, 
When we speak of Moab, remember, we are speaking of, of a land, of a kingdom, and of a people. Okay, it's not just a point on the map. It's actually a country, a kingdom, and a people. Moab was a land, a land that was first mentioned around 1270 B.C. during the reign of Ramesses II, the pharaoh of Egypt from 1279 to 1213. This is the first time that Moab shows up in historical writings. The kingdom of Moab emerged in the 9th century BC and disappeared a few decades after the destruction of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar II in 586 BC. And lastly, the people of Moab, they had a tumultuous and troubled history with Israel. The Old Testament narrative, uh, in the Old Testament narrative, the Moabites were often cast as enemies and an inferior people. If you listen to the Israelites talking about the Moabites, you would quickly get the sense that the Moabites were thought of as less than people. Enemies. Inferior. Israel's disdain of the Moabites began in Genesis chapter 19, uh, verses 30 through 38, um, in which Lot's daughters have babies following the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, sheesh. I don't know how to approach this quite uh, in its entirety, but turn there. You can turn there. Genesis chapter 19. We're going to just read part of this because we have children in the room. Uh, this is the story of Lot and his daughters. Okay, I'm going to read verses 30 and 32 afterward in uh, Genesis 19. Afterward, Lot left Zoar because he was afraid of the people there, and he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. One day the older daughter went to, said to her sister, there are no men left anywhere in the entire area, so we can't get married like everyone else. And our father will soon be too old to have children. Come, let's get him drunk and have babies. The story gets a little PG from there. PG-13, I guess. Is that fair? It gets a little PG-13 from there, so we're going to jump over to verse 36 for the rest of the story. As a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. When the older daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Moab. He became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Moabites. When the younger daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Benami. He became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Ammonites. So, if you read that passage, you kind of get this feeling in the pit of your stomach like, oh, gross. That feeling, that feeling you feel in the pit of your stomach was the feeling shared by the entire nation of Israel toward the Moabites. When they thought of the Moabites, they remembered this story. They remembered their origin story, and they thought, ugh, gross. Who does that? Right? Although Lot was Abraham's net father Abraham, who had many sons, Lot was Abraham's nephew, Moab's incestuous beginning caused Israel to regard them as dirty, sinful, trashy, inbred people. If I'm doing my job, you're starting to understand how Israel thought of Moabites. They thought of them as gross people because of their story, because of where they began. Making matters worse, Moabite women had a history of beguiling, beguiling, <laughs> beguiling Israelite men, which led them into idolatry and sexual sin. 
beguiling them during the Exodus, as we read about in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. Let's, read, let's flip there. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. While the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods, so the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. So the, the women of Moab had a history of, uh, of distracting Israelite men, leading them into idolatry and sexual sin. Even during King Solomon's reign, uh, the Moabites show up. The Moabite women show up and they lead him himself into sin. Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11 Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Holy moly. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely, as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he built, even built a pagan shrine to, to Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another to Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, King Solomon, was drawn aside by the wiles of the Moabite women, distracted from the worship of the one true God and led to worship the foreign gods of all the surrounding nations, including the Moabites. As a result, children born to Israelite and Moabite relationships were regarded as detestable half-breeds, and those half-breeds were forbidden to worship Yahweh for ten generations. For ten generations in Deut Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, verses 2 through 6. If a man, if a person is illegitimate by birth, neither he nor his descendants for ten generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for ten generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. These nations did not welcome you with food and water when you came out of Egypt. Instead, they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pithor in distant Aram, Neharam, to curse you. But the Lord your God refused to listen to Balaam. He turned the intended curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. As long as you live, you must never promote the welfare and prosperity of the Ammonites or Moabites. All right, why am I reading all these passages? Like Again, I'm filling in the background. We need to hear what it sounded like to hear the name Moab, to hear the name of Moabites. Deuteronomy 23 refers to another person, the Moabite. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 refers to another reason the Moabites were disliked. The Moabite king named Balak, he hired a prophet named Balaam to curse Israel, but that was foiled. The curse was turned into a blessing, and Balaam was stopped in his tracks by what? Does anyone know this story? A talking donkey. One of the craziest stories in the Old Testament. An angel appears to it and the donkey sees it and stops and Balaam's like beating the donkey and he's like, the donkey's like, stop. Stop beating me, don't you see? I can't continue. 
It, it's a good story. Um, so anyway, they think back to Balaam and the curse called down upon them by the king of the Moabites, Balak. The back and forth between Israel and Moab stretches on through Judges, through the Samuels, even into the prophecies of Amos, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Moab and Israel had a shared ancestry. Let's not lose sight of this. Amidst all the animosity and the hatred and the cultural disdain, Israel and, Mo and Moab, they had a shared history, a shared ancestry, a shared language, a shared geography. This closeness, closeness no doubt, led to much competition, suspicion, and strife. Has anyone ever hold, heard the old axiom, familiarity breeds contempt? Those who are closest to us, most familiar to us, are, the, are often the easiest targets of our, of our rage, of our hatred, of our disrespect. The old axiom, familiarity breeds contempt, is nothing new. As Moab presented, posed a threat to Israel's identity, largely because, here's what I think, she posed a threat to Israel's identity largely because she reminded Israel of herself. Moab reminded Israel of herself and of her past failures, and Israel now reviled Moab. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? Someone that just you really dislike and just really stirs up a lot of just uh, negative feelings inside of you, a lot of revulsion. And if you really, really look intently into it, you realize the reason you're so put off by them, you're so triggered by them, is because they remind you of you. They dredge back up in you your past failures, the things you've done. And so it, they become an easy target for you to, to lay all of your hurt and all of your rage and all of your uh, pain upon them and hold them at arm's length. Moab reminded Israel of herself and her past failures. Israel's stance toward Moab was thus, stay away and don't assimilate. Have nothing to do with Moab. So then, then we come to the story of Ruth. We come to the story of Ruth and we find that she is none other than a Moabitess widow. And she's the star of the show. She's at the center of this story about God's covenant faithfulness and of His redemptive kindness. She's transplanted into this little town of Bethlehem of Judea, tagging along with her mother-in-law named Naomi. Not only is Ruth rolling into town marked by grief and loss, she's also marked by stigma. She's marked by the stigma of being from Moab. Being from Moab, she's a daughter of incest. She's a daughter of idolatry. She's a daughter of troublemaking. And now she's here. She's here. So this is an important element in Ruth's story, but it's also, in a way, an important element in our own story. Remember, why is Ruth and her story in the canon of Scripture? Because it's a story we need to hear. It's a story for us as well. This story is ultimately about God's faithfulness to His promises. This story is ultimately about God's kindness to the outcast. This story is ultimately about God's willingness to redeem us and to welcome us into His very own family. 
There are many things that we must hold in perspective as we read the story of Ruth, of Naomi, and of Boaz, the story of widows, of farmers, and of kinsmen redeemers, and of God. We must have a, 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 a flexible, agile way of thinking as we enter into the story. It's not just a simple storyline. We must remember these grand, hopeful themes that are presented in this local telling of this story among everyday people. This simple story starts to open up to us as we discover the many subtle layers, the important themes, and the, the shared storylines that we all discover in the life of faith. Hear this, we all come from places like Moab. Spiritually, we're all coming from a place very much like Moab, a place marked by our sin, a place marked with conflict, with failure and betrayal. Guys, we all have a history. We all carry with us a reputation. All of us carry with us a reputation for idolatry, for corruption, for impurity, and for moral failure. None of us come into this story uh, clean. We all show up in the life with God as if we're coming from the land of Moab, aren't we? And what do we find when we encounter God? In the midst of it all, God welcomes us. Startlingly, surprisingly, God welcomes us all. Welcomes us all to Himself, giving us a home with Him, undeservedly redeeming us by faith in Jesus Christ through His finished work of atonement on the cross, through His life, His death, and His resurrection. God welcomes us home. He redeems us by faith. In the midst of all of our grief, our loss, and our sadness, we find our way toward the promised land, and we discover a welcome, and we discover a hope and a future. So be encouraged. Know that as we read the story of Ruth, we're in a way reading our own story. That displacement and that reputation that Ruth carried with her just by being from Moab, we carried that with us too as we came to, to God through faith in Jesus. And just like Boaz, who is that Christ figure, Jesus comes to us and covers us with His righteousness and says, Welcome home. You belong here. You're safe with me. Oh, I pray that you'll hear that. You're safe because of Jesus. You're welcomed home because of Jesus. I'd like to finish with this closing meditation. And if you would, just close your eyes. I'm going to read Romans uh, from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But let this be our closing meditation. Let us be reminded of what God has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. And then we'll just take a moment after that to just sit and reflect and pray, enter into a conversation with God, make the most of this opportunity. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. When we were utterly helpless, 
Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an, unright, an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Lord, hear our prayers this morning, which we lift to you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I think we all have a deep sense that none of us have any business being here. We all come from a troubled land. We come from a troubled place of idolatry and of sin and of disobedience. Lord, we've been a, a, a difficult people, yet you've persisted in pursuing us. And for all those who would come to you through faith in Jesus, you've welcomed us home. You've welcomed us. You've bestowed righteousness upon us. And now you call us your friend. Lord, I thank you for what Jesus has done. God, I'm more and more aware day by day of my, of my dirtiness, of my brokenness. Lord, you have every right to think of me as Israel thought of Moabites. I'm, a, 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 I'm damaged goods. But you're in, the, you're in the business of making all things new, and you're taking those broken pieces, those damaged parts, and restoring them and giving them new life. And it all happens because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. So I thank you for that. God, I pray that each of us, as we spend time intentionally repeatedly in Ruth's story, I pray that we would begin to more and more hear it as our own story, seeing ourselves show up in that story. Yes, let us hear it with, the, with Israelite ears, but also may we hear it with Ruth's ears, what it sounds like, what it feels like, what it means to be welcomed home, to be an outcast, to be exiled, and then to be brought in, to be made safe, and to be made family. Lord, I thank you for your kindness and your faithfulness that shows up in this story. God, may it speak deeply to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I always, I always hate moving on from this, this point. There's the wasp. Did you see it? All right. Um, we've got a couple of announcements before we finish up for today. But thank you for this time. I know it's kind of sparse just with everything going on and the COVID numbers going bananas. Um, I know it takes a lot of 
courage sometimes to get out of the house and to come and worship together. But um, uh, this is important. It's important for us to, to worship our King together. And uh, don't feel guilty if you don't come. Uh, for those of you who may be watching this online or whatever, don't feel guilty about not being here. But um, know that, that Jesus is greater, that the work He's doing in your heart uh, is that which, would, which sustains you and preserves you uh, in, uh, today and in the future. And so um, as you're able, continue to come to worship. Let's worship together because this is a treasured time. And uh, I'm thankful that you've made it a priority in your week. So announcements. Uh, let's see, I wrote them down somewhere here. Oh, yes, here we are. Uh, students, uh, the Satterfields are still in quarantine. So I think, Aaron, are you heading up students again tonight? Six o'clock here at the building again? Okay, so Aaron led last week and he'll be leading tonight. So six o'clock here at the building. Uh, Kids Focus, if you're interested in being part of the Kids Focus ministry that we do on Sunday mornings during our worship gatherings, please see me and we'll get you uh, plugged in for that. Um, one thing you may or may not know about is we have some serious technology ramped up all up in here. Uh, we've got baby monitors now in the cry room and in the nursery. So as we speak, you could be in that room or you could be in the nursery and be hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth. Right? The monitor's right there. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, some straight-up early 2000s technology. It's wireless. So, anyway, uh, if you've got young children and they're, you know, it's just getting stressful for you, feel free to uh, go back there, go in the nursery. Now you can kind of hear what's going on in here. It's pretty low fidelity, but you can still hear. So that's good, right? Hey, guess what? Next Sunday begins the season of Advent. Yeah. Advent. It's a season of preparation, of waiting to receive our newborn king once again as we head to Christmas. And uh, one thing I love about the seasons of the Christian calendar is that it does that preparation work better. When I was raised uh, growing up, Christmas was a day. Easter, a day. <laughs> but the, the, the joy of Advent and the benefit of Lent is that it Set, set us, it sets aside time for us to really engage, really prepare, really make ourselves available uh, to the work of God in the world. And especially at Christmas time, there's this just growing sense of joy as we move through that season. So uh, when you come to worship next week, you'll notice we've got some decorations up. Uh, but really, we're going to have responsive readings and some new elements in worship. But it's going to be a special time. And we've also got to, we're going to press pause on Ruth. And we're going to head into an Advent teaching series, uh, which I think next week is you guys, right? Or is that you guys? So one of, either the Joneses or the Davises are teaching next week as we start off our Christmas uh, focus, and then the Joneses, and then Curtis and Kendi, and then myself right before Christmas. Then we'll have Christmas Eve, uh, Lord willing, and the COVID creep don't rise. <laughs> so anyway, if you can hang out right after worship, we're going to put up just uh, bare bones Christmas decorations, just the big snowflakes and things like that. So if you can give me a hand, that would be much appreciated. Uh, Angel Tree. Uh, Amanda, you got anything to say about Angel Tree? Yeah, uh, next Sunday is the Yeah. So if, if we're not enough people to take care of all these, well, does the church? So, so because we're not doing Candyland 
here. We have that room full of gifts ready to match up with most of those angels. If you look at those angels on the tree, there's a couple that are like very specific things, like gift cards to a place for clothes because they're pretty grown kids. Um, if you would pay attention and uh, go for the very specific gifts, that would be awesome. There's enough gifts in there to cover mm -hmm. a huge amount. Yeah. And I, I have, um, Angel Tree makes it very flexible to decide if you're going to buy for other kids in the household. <coughs> and our church always has. So I've run into a couple recently where it's a grandma and grandpa raising a kid and there's tons of cousins like you know like it ends up being like eight kids in a house like two sets of family and on some of them I just have so and so's cousin it still has their family number and those are going to be very generic gifts from that background so a lot of the a lot of the work to be done prior to December the 5th would be getting in that back room with me wrapping gifts that match these and then on December the 5th, I need a handful of volunteers to run through. Um, I think we'll have people coming in, telling us their names. We'll have all their gifts downstairs in the hallway lined out. And then they'll do a like, little drive through in our parking lot and end out on that side with Santa waving and helping get gifts distributed on that side. So it'll be like yeah. But through our parking lot, I want to do as much as we possibly can, like like give packets of hot chocolate and cookies like we normally do, but they take it home and make it. So give the little tracks that we do, give the sign-up for a Bible. Like I want to do all those things that we normally do. Um, I'm going to be bringing our, like, plug-it-in, blow-up snowman. If anyone has stuff like that, like the easy Christmas decorations, like, I want to try to make it as cheery as we can. It's, it's kind of going, meh, meh, and I don't want it to feel like that. I want us to, like, do as good of a job as we can. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, that's where all that's at. And I may or may not be here next week, but I'm on Sunday. Mm -hmm. But I definitely will be checking gifts during next week, maybe even here this week, yeah. Yeah. So if you can help with Angel Tree, get with Amanda. If you've got a gift, you can bring it up here on the stage uh, next Sunday, and then uh, December fifth from one to two. If you don't know about Angel Tree, it's a ministry of prison fellowship. So every kid that we're buying a gift for has a parent who is incarcerated. So this is a way to share Christ's love and uh, bring some joy into Christmas on behalf of those parents who are uh, separated from their kids right now. Wow. 
That's awesome. So we're going to really invest in Angel Tree this year. We've got a lot to do before it happens on the 5th. So Candyland is canceled this year just for logistic reasons and safety reasons. Um, we view the giving of tithes and offerings as an intimate expression of faith and worship. So we want to make sure we offer um, plenty of opportunities for you to give and to worship in that way. There's an iPad back there on the little desk that you can give with a debit card. Uh, there's two baskets here in the room. And then online on our website, you can give uh, through PayPal and uh, electronically. So... Uh, Love Thy Neighbor is uh, Friday, December 11th from 1 to 2. This will be our Christmas holiday bag giveaway with Victory Mission. So if you can come and serve that day and just bless people, pray with them, that would be awesome as well. Uh, here's a thank you note for my wife and I for all your kindness shown to us during this difficult time with her cancer diagnosis and all the treatment uh, stuff that we're going through right now. Um, I'm going to leave this right up here, and if you would, come and read it, because uh, I would probably gush a little too much if I read it right now. So, sorry. Happy Thanksgiving. Have a great Thanksgiving this week. Travel safely. Be safe in your gatherings with family and friends. Uh, uh, just uh, try not to get sick and uh, just use your best judgment on um, how and when and where you get together. So anything I missed. Let's stand and pray as the Lord taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to Him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thanks, everybody. Have a good afternoon.